because there's a correlation between safety and money. Safety is a luxury and we pay for it. You know, if you've got no money, then generally you've got nothing to be stolen. And in any case, you, know, you couldn't afford security. But if you take a look at the United States, for every police officer, there are five private security officers. The worldwide security business is now worth about $250 billion, and it's increasing at about 9% a year. Welcome back to The Live Drop. I'm your host, Mark Valley, and my guest is an old friend, Michael Kroll. Mike's a security expert, and uh, he's going to talk with us a bit today about the history of security, how it's a relatively new concept, and over a million deaths in the Bible, but not one mention of security. He talks about the difference between safety and security, how it relates to risk as well. We go into the evolution of, of fear and how that relates to you know, the presidential election now and also COVID-19. Mike's you know, somebody I've known for a long time. He worked at the United Nations. He worked at the European Union. He's been 18 years at the British uh, Foreign Office. He worked at Facebook, and he's a consultant now. And I have to say, he's just one of the smartest people I know. And this conversation <laughs> reminds me of one of those sort of fun, earnest uh, talks we would have over beers late into the night um, back in our 20s. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Begin transmission. Uh, we met during the Cold War. In the occupied city of Berlin, Mike was actually one of my, I like to call him my occupational mentors. <laughs> By occupation, I don't mean my job. I mean, like he taught me how to be a good occupier <laughs> in, <laughs> in the occupied city. So yeah, we were both engineer officers, I guess. We built things and we blew things up. I was on the American side. You were up in the British sector. You can sort of give me a quick guide to where, how you got to where you are right now. Right. You mean starting from when we kept the free world free? Absolutely. Once we yeah. freed the free world. <laughs> and think of the free world. I think we both ended up in, uh, in the Middle East uh, after that. Right. Uh, you in Saudi, uh, me in Kuwait immediately after the war. I spent time after the war clearing mines and ordnance that the Iraqi army had left behind. And after that, I decided that I needed to leave the army as well. I go out to Cambodia. I cleared landmines there. And you nearly joined me, Mark. You I almost did. But again, life took another turn. And you decided that instead of being a deminer in Cambodia, you had to be a Hollywood movie star. Yeah, I go with journeyman, television actor. But yeah, I'm, I, it, it was good enough yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. So I was, grovel, I was groveling around in the dirt in uh, Cambodia, then Africa and the Balkans, a bit of time in Afghanistan. And eventually I got a sensible job and I joined the British Foreign Office as a diplomat. So that's the equivalent of your State Department. Right. About 18 years uh, foreign service, including attachments to the European Union. I made my personal Brexit, sadly, uh, just in time. Then the United Nations spent a bit of time with Facebook. But I think the common theme throughout all of that is uh, safety, security, and risk. And that's the world that I'm in now. So safety, security, what's the middle one? Security. And risk. Okay. Well, that's a quick one. Did you actually remove mines when you were there? I mean, were you actually poking those knitting needles into the ground, finding them and... Yeah, I did all of that. I mean, much of it was about uh, training other people and leading them in the field. But uh, right. uh, no, I cleared a, a lot of mines and uh, I blew up a lot of stuff. And it was tremendous fun. Occasionally emotional, but generally uh, immensely satisfying. And looking back now on a 30-year career, uh, that was probably the most satisfying, the most important, you know, the most exciting time of my life. I mean, that is, I mean, removing a mine. 
Yeah, but in particular, I think it was the context. So, um, you know, Cambodia, I think many people would have seen the killing fields. You know, they have a vague idea of what happened, the Pol Pot regime, many Cambodians going across the border to Thailand uh, and living there as refugees for 10, 15 years or more. You know, a lot of Cambodians were born in Thailand. They were teenagers when they returned. And the first job there was to identify land that was free of mines. Um, And then secondly, to clear mines so that people could return from the refugee camps in Thailand and build their villages on them. So it was immensely satisfying to seeing uh, minefields turned into villages, into rice fields, uh, to live amongst the Cambodians. And in particular, um, I can remember being up in some villages in the northeast. And whenever you turned up there, it was always a fuss. It was always exciting. People were interested in you. The entire village was swarm around you. And I remember one time this old woman coming towards me and then rubbing my skin and pulling my nose. And I'm asking my translator what's going on. She said, she's heard about white people, but she never believed that they really existed. You're the first one that they've seen. It was hugely exciting. An absolute privilege being out there. Oh, you're, you're exotic there. Yeah. This was early 90s. Uh, yeah, early 90s, uh, 91, 92, 93. Did you go into Laos as well? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, I've, that's, that's sort of my dream destination. And in particular, the thing is, if you clear landmines, most mines just have a tiny piece of metal in them. And finding them is very slow, very hard. You use sensitive metal detectors. And you maybe clear one square meter, one square yard of ground at a time. Whereas in Laos, it was mainly bomblets, which are made almost exclusively of metal. So they're easy to find. So uh, you can get through ground much quicker. You're much more certain that you're finding what you're looking for. And the overall experience is that much more satisfying. And I've heard that uh, Laos and the uh, Laotian people uh, are absolutely amazing. So I've always wanted to visit. It's still on my list. But no, I was exclusively clearing mines in Cambodia. Those those bomblets weren't buried either they were just dropped from air, from air yeah they right? were dropped i mean they sort of look like uh, baseballs they're about that sort of size others look like little cheeses there's lots of different designs out there so you'd have a, an aircraft that would fly fairly low maybe a thousand feet or so and it would carry this sort of payload of maybe you know two thousand bomblets that would scatter over a wide area some would detonate on impact others would throw out trip wires for people to uh, to trip over and detonate but uh, a lot of them didn't detonate, and that's what causes the problems that you have out there today. You also wrote a book about it, right? I wrote a book called The History of Landmines, which mm-hmm. does what it says on the tin. You can still get it on Amazon, by the way. On Amazon, there'll be a link in the show notes to The History of Landmines. Seems to be more of a problem with landmines and peace than, than war. Now. Yeah, but most countries uh, have actually banned their use, with, with one or two notable exceptions. Who are they? Well, you're sitting in one of them. (laughs) (laughs) The free state of California? Well, I think the United States, uh, Russia, China, Iran, all of those great nations. So you are now a security specialist. What is is our perception of, of our safety and our security? If you compare the United States and China, China, authoritarian, United States, libertarian, for the most part. But the United States has a murder rate, which is four times that of China. Now, would you swap your liberty for your freedom? Would you swap safety for your freedom? You know, and I think there's a whole balance that needs to be made there. And I think that's ultimately you know, what we've got to. And I think we have to remember also that security is a relatively modern construct. As a word, it didn't exist until the 16th century. And it's 
It's from the Latin se without cure worries you know it's no worries mate you know <laughs> and it was the 16th century it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the australian concept uh, but you know it wasn't until the 16th century that we used that word hakuna matata hakuna matata hamnashida so so what happened before that well you know basically it's this sort of uh, hobbesian concept of life being you know nasty short and brutish you know, life expectancy up until relatively recently was incredibly short. You know, if we'd been born in 1900, we might have had a life expectancy of perhaps 50 years. You know, in the UK, you know, here we have this concept of, you know, people living for three score years and 10. That came out in the King James uh, Bible in the 17th century. But I think it was George IV was the first English monarch to live past 70. So I think the point there is that up until relatively recently, people died young of all kinds of things. You know, disease would be the predominant thing, uh, but also possibly violent death. And if, if we kind of rewind even further from there, so we started life as, as hunter-gatherers on the East African plain. And in these hunter-gatherer groups, the rate of violent death was about 200 per 100,000. Once we turned into sort of settled farmers, the rate of violent death was three times that amount. So it was about 600 people per 100,000. In the modern world, about five people per 100,000 you know, have a violent death. So I think the interesting thing about that, as libertarian hunter-gatherers, you know, we had our struggles within the group, you know, with the alpha male, you know, sorting out what was, what was almost literally a, a pecking order there. Then once we became farmers, we had land, we had tools, we had homes, we had stores of grain, we had stores of food, we had stuff that, that people could steal. Oh, right. We had the situation that made us insecure. And you touched initially, Mark, on this concept of you know governments providing security. Well, go back to us being apes, and it was the alpha male that provided security. As hunter-gatherers, you know, the alpha male concept continued. No hunter-gatherer group had more than about 150 members. Beyond that, groups would start to sort of break off and disappear on their own. The alpha male couldn't possibly maintain control, couldn't know more than about 150 people. But once you came together as, as, as farmers, you know, and you started to create a food surplus, you know, then you started to compete with your neighbors for land, for resources, for women, for grain, for tools. And at that point, you needed to have a much more complex society that could dominate its neighbors. Societies in those days, they were almost like sharks. Unless they were devouring their neighbors, they would get devoured themselves. And this is how civilization, a very simplistic approach, just got bigger and bigger and bigger until you have something like the Egyptian civilization, where they harmonized all the various groups living along the Nile and created the single entity. And the unique thing about um, Egypt was it was almost invulnerable. You know, 2000 BC, desert on three sides and the Mediterranean in the north. So if anyone wanted to attack them, that was a long approach, you know, in the underdeveloped logistical arrangements of armies to the day. So they had 3,000 years of almost uninterrupted uh, rule before the Greeks came, then before the Romans came. You know, and the other feature of this, of, of all civilizations, is slavery and brutality. So once you conquered the neighboring village, then you know you had a choice. Either you could kill everyone so that they weren't a threat to you, or preferably you could get everyone to work for you so that they could pay you taxes, or they come and fight for you. you know, they come under your fold. 
know, and the irony is the more war there is, the more people actually live at peace. You know, if you've got 5,000 warring states, there's constant battles. You know, If, like now, you only have 195 states, there are fewer wars. So as you expand, you, know, you bring people into your fold, you subjugate them. And the way that you command their obedience is through capital punishment or corporal punishment. At the top of the apex of every justice system, is the ability to take someone's life legitimately. So a government has a, has a monopoly on power, has a monopoly on violence. And ultimately, people will do what the king says, what the government says, because the government can punish you. you know, in many countries today, including your own, you know, they can take your life. You know, in others, you know, they take your liberty. But you know, violence, brutality, death, slavery, this has always been part of our lives. And we talk about how can people be so inhuman? Well, actually, they're incredibly human. It's not inhumanity. That's the natural condition. And it's as we've civilized ourselves, we've socialized ourselves away from violence, and we've created this concept of security. I mean, war in a, in essentially was what brought – I always thought that it was you know, trade and – international commerce the, those are the you know the, the spice trail those are the things that created like a mix of cultures and you know exposed countries to other you know marco polo brought back pasta yeah, explosives yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well mark I, i'm happy to say i think we're both right you know i'm talking about wars with with neighbors you know competing right. for resources and i think you're talking about uh, expeditions going out and exploring the world where cultures meet each other for the first time and the reason that that people set out you know in these little wooden ships across these oceans was to explore to trade to bring up new things to learn about the world you know so you know for example there was the spice trade and you know the dutch the first capitalists who would sail all the way around to indonesia a voyage that would take like nine months and then they started trading you know, and then they had to protect their little trading empires. And then because they were dominant and they had firearms, they could subjugate the, na- the, uh, the natives. And, you know, I think a lot of these empires, you know, they didn't set out to conquest. They set out to trade. So you have what's known as the three C's. So you have commerce, and that was often followed by Christianity, you know, with people bearing the cross, proselytizing, and then what in the West we would term civilization. Now, of course, many of these countries, all of these countries had their own civilizations anyway. But, you know, in the West, when we started uh, traveling in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, you know, we believed that our civilization was superior. And technically it was. We had guns. Uh, if, if you're familiar with Jared Diamond's work as well, you know, we had uh, guns, germs and steel. And all of these decimated the new world. You know, take a look at the population figures of, say, Latin America after the uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, arrived there, you know, not only did they butcher a large number, but European diseases took hold in the native populations and decimated them. I mean, at the time, people thought that that was just a demonstration. I mean, I don't know why people thought in the 17th century, but at the time, they thought it was it was proof of their superiority that they had immunity to this to these diseases. That yeah, and uh, you know, I think it's easy to see why Europeans felt like. 
that. You know, not least because I think some of the customs of uh, people in other parts of the world, you know, ripping aside people's chests, pulling out their hearts, you know, throwing them off these great temples, the human sacrifice stuff, all good things that we had done only a thousand years previously in, say, the Roman Empire, which was incredibly sophisticated and brutal at the same time. And if we look at the Incas and the Aztecs and the Mayas, they were incredibly sophisticated and brutal at the same time. And they used brutality in exactly the same way that the Romans did to ensure obedience, to ensure compliance, to ensure that rulers were able to subjugate their people, that everyone was afraid of them. And then the other mechanism that most civilizations uh, clocked onto as well was a little thing called religion. Because if you were a ruler and if you could persuade everyone that, hang on, you're appointed by some divine being and only you were appointed. No one else could be king. You know, the gods had appointed you. It kind of locked in your kingdom. You were the ruler forever. No one could possibly challenge the gods. So you have religion and you have violence you know, that go hand in hand. And then if you take a look, you know, let's return to the Romans. The Romans used to kill Christians for entertainment. You know, they persecuted them. And then, what was it, in about 325 AD, Christianity became the religion of the Romans. Now, why was that? Well, there are a number of uh, aspects. But Christianity, back in the early days, it was it was a love cult, a personality cult. You know, love, peace, happiness. Let's all be poor fishermen, carpenters. It was a celebration of that. The Romans, you know, it was dominance it was monumental temples you know big shows of strength how on earth did they manage to marry up with the church the roman catholic church it still exists today well a bit of each rubbed off on the other so the romans became a little bit sort of pious and accepted you know christian gods and that sort of thing they also accepted saints so whilst we think of christianity of being uh, a monotheist uh, religion actually they have multiple gods you know we can worship whichever saint we like it's not just jesus you know it's not just god you know, there were lots of saints saint christopher you know maria all of those folks and then the folks in the church took something for the romans as well and that something was called brutality and if you take a look at the seven deadly sins and the punishments that you had it was like being thrown in a barrel of snakes being boiled in water you know for gluttony it was being pushed off a cliff and it was only in the 19th century that all of these punishments were actually wiped off the papal slate. So for 1,600 years, if you transgressed you know, the, the teachings of the church, you, know, you could have bits of you chopped off, you could be burnt at the stake, you could be brandished. So here we have a, a, a marriage between you know, violence, religion, and the state. That's interesting that they took on sainthood, that they sort of accepted that, because most saints you don't really picture them as being these, you know, bellicose warriors fighting against the fighting against the empire, maybe Joan of Arc. But I mean, uh, the saints were always to kind of turn the other cheek. Generally speaking, yes. But if you were guilty of one of the seven deadly sins, then the church would keep you in, in line. I mean, the reward was that if you lived a virtuous life, you would go to heaven. Now, no one could disprove that you didn't go to heaven. You know, it could just be a big old period, a full stop at the end of your life. And after that, there's darkness, there's blackness. But every religion tells you that live well and you'll go to the afterlife. I mean, you know, the, uh, the Egyptians, it was essentially one big death cult. You know, people were buried with their cats, with their soldiers, with their possession. You know, they really believed that they were heading that way. Take a look at the Chinese as well, the terracotta warriors. 
All right. Religions, you know, believed in life after death. That was the reward for living a good life. And the punishment for living a bad life, if it wasn't death, it was branding, you know, it was beating, it was stoning, it was all those terrible things. And to put this into more perspective, Mark, think of the Bible. I'm sure you do on a daily basis. <laughs> but the, I think of, well, the, I think of a Bible. Yeah. The Bible describes over a million deaths in battle, in conflict, by stoning, raping, pillaging, crucifying. It's gruesome. If you lined up all the deaths in the Bible, you'd be horrified. But it never mentions the term security. You have shepherds guarding their flocks by night. That's about as close as you can get. And you have Ezekiel talking about the watchman, the night watchman. But that's it. So it talks about all of this death, but it doesn't talk about security. And if you think of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. People's principal preoccupation up until probably the 18th century in most countries and in a number of countries today, the principal preoccupation was getting enough to eat rather than being knife stabbed or clubbed by some nasty person. So the concept of safety has gone from your immediate security, your immediate safety to your security and your safety in the future. Here, there are two roads that we need to take. One is safety and the other is security. And I think we need to define them both. So safety is about something inanimate. It's about a falling rock. It's about a hurricane. It's about tripping down the stairs or not quite inanimate, in fact, literally animate, an animal, you know, safety from animals, from lions, from snakes, from tigers. Whereas security is specifically about threats that come from humans. And humans are endlessly adaptable. You know, safety threats, they're easy to, to deal with. You know, you build a strong enough wall and it's going to keep out animals. If you have to go into the jungle, take a spear and you can stab one if one comes towards you. But if you're protecting yourself from people, people are endlessly adaptable. They could climb over it. They could burrow under it. You know, they could break down the doors. They could wait until you come out and jump on you. Safety threats are wrong. Security threats are endlessly adaptable. Yeah, there's a little more guile involved with, with security than safety. Yeah, exactly. There's guile and there's morality. So if someone, if a coconut falls on someone's head and they die, you know, it's an accident, it's terrible. If, if, if there's a, a tempest, if there's a storm, if there's a tornado and someone dies, essentially, up until very recently, it was considered as an act of God. But if you murdered someone, it was a moral issue. But haven't we by now, I mean, this is like, we're just talking in such generalities. And I'm really glad you're talking about this stuff because I um. Yeah. I mean, I can only just talk about it from a layman's perspective, but you're the specialist. But it seems like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that by now we would have had it figured out the, the, the range of human threats and where they come from and how to expect them? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great way of looking at it. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. But I think here is where we need to start looking at money because there's a correlation between safety and money. Safety is a luxury and we pay for it. You know, if you've got no money, uh, then generally you've got nothing that, uh, to be stolen. And in any case, you, know, you couldn't afford security. But if you take a look at the United States, for every police officer, there are five private security officers. The worldwide security business is now worth about $250 billion, and it's increasing at about 9% a year. So I think you know, that, that's a really 
uh, curious concept. You know, before about the 1960s, there were very few private security officers, but a number of things started to happen. I mean, first of all, we had industrialization. Once you had industrialization, you know, people had better standards of living, they lived longer, they had more stuff, stuff could be stolen. Uh, also, there's a correlation between uh, security and wealth, because unless you have security, you can't industrialize, you can't thrive, you can't build anything. No one's going to invest long term if you're worried that someone's going to come over you know, and invade you. So you need security to build wealth. And once you have wealth, you start to need more security to protect it. And then you end up having this sort of alignment of interest. I mean, first of all, let me just rewind a little bit. There's a correlation between wealth and health between wealth, health, and longevity. So the more money you've got, the longer you'll live. So you take a look at the wealthy countries, you know, Switzerland, Japan, people there live to be about a gazillion. You take a look at the you know, poorer countries, you know, Yemen, Somalia, you know, life expectancy there is probably less than 40. So once you started to acquire wealth, you, know, you try and protect it. And then you start having this alignment of interests. And once you've got money, you want to live forever. T- death becomes a technical issue. You need a new heart valve, you can change it. Yeah? And so your life becomes worth more. And so you'll spend more to protect it and to prolong it. And this is where uh, safety, security, medicine, and life expectancy start to blend into each other. And then you have politicians, and it's just like you know the alpha monkey in the group. It's like you know the original king. His first purpose was to keep you safe. If he couldn't keep you safe, he, would, he wasn't king. And it's the same with modern p- politicians. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm the law and order person. Remember that line? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's absolutely the first order of them. And then you have security companies. They want to do business. Yeah, I can make you safer. I can make you stronger. You know? I can reassure you. As long as you pay me money, you know, I can do X, Y, and Z to keep you safer. And then there are lawyers. And we have this concept of duty of care. And that's about taking reasonable measures against reasonably foreseeable harm. Mm-hmm. And in other words, where there's a blame, there's a claim. It's about accountability. And in some ways, you think the blame culture is always kind of negative. But actually, the, the upside of it is, okay, who's responsible? You know, who needs to build the wall? Who needs to man the wall? You know, who needs to finance the wall? It's deciding who's responsible for everything. And then you have the media. And the media, you know, their line is always, if it bleeds, it leads. So, so be afraid. Be very afraid. And you take a look at an event like 9-11, you know, those scenes of those aircraft flying into the Twin Towers, you know, all of us that saw that, we can never forget it. It was a black swan event. You know, it's, it never happened before. It's never happened since. But it plays upon our consciousness. It erodes our confidence. You know, it makes us seek safety. And then, of course, you know, we have human nature. We all want to be smarter, taller, better looking, thinner. We want more hair and we want to live longer. And then you have uh, companies, employers. You know, they want to make sure that their uh, assets are safe, their people are safe, that their trademarks are safe, that their secrets are safe. So everything is heading in the same direction. And no one's going to sort of stand back and say, that's it. It's fine if we live to just, you know, 70 years. You know, our forefathers only managed 50. We live 20 years longer and much healthier. Yeah? And our forefathers never had central heating or hot and cold running water. You know, why do we need all of this? 
because it's unstoppable. You know, the ambition of humans just continues. Just will not stop. That's it. We want to live forever. So many elements of society contribute to keeping us interested (laughs) or keeping you feeling like you need to be on your toes. You need to watch out. You need to be afraid. You need to be afraid. Even even in our lexicon, you know, at the end of this, we'll probably say, "Uh, bye, Mark. Take care. Stay safe. It's like, what the fuck? You know, you're in California. What's going to happen to you? You had the best standard of living of just about everyone else on the planet. You're safer than everyone else. Why am I going to say, stay safe, take care? Oh, I actually agree with you. When people say, be yeah. safe, I'm like, oh, oh, geez, you just, I was having a perfectly fine day. Yeah. You know? And now I got to worry yeah. about coconuts falling out of buildings. You know, That's or it. I mean, I, I, I travel a lot with, uh, with my job. Uh, uh, to various different places. And people often say as I'm getting on the plane, well, you be careful, stay safe. And I'm thinking, what do you know about this plane that I don't? Yeah. <laughs> stay Is safe. Is it going to crash? What am I going to do? Get, get a, I've already get a seat closer to the emergency yeah, exit. Yeah. You know? well, well, here's a curious one, because um, in 1959, for every million aircraft takeoffs, there were 40 fatalities. And between 1959 and 2019, 65,000 people were killed in commercial aviation. Now, tell me, Mark, is that a lot or not? 65,000 people killed on aircraft. Well, I mean, nowadays it's going to be completely different. If you look at the number of COVID deaths, I mean, we're up to almost at 190,000. I mean, numbers of deaths are just going to be... We're going back into like the plague years, you know. Well, well we, we kind of, adjust of are things. in some ways, but sixty-five thousand over what's that? A sixty-year period. It's about ten thousand a year, you know, uh, historically. That number now is tiny. It's if it's we're into the dozens of people uh, a year are killed, and in the U.S., I don't think you've had a, a fatality on a commercial aircraft in about ten years. You know, the numbers are tiny. And today you are 400 times safer in an aircraft than you were in 1959. Yet in the same time, you know, I gave you that figure of 65,000 people killed since 1959 in commercial aviation. 60 million people have been killed in vehicles, road vehicles. Yet that's a risk that we accept readily. You know, we're fine. We're more nervous about flying than we are about the journey to the airport. So there's something wrong there with the way that we perceive risk. Yeah, and I think part of that is because all of our risk mechanisms, our fear mechanisms, they were programmed into us. They were, they were baked into our DNA when we were there you know, as homo sapiens on the East African plain. So 100,000 years ago, when what were we scared of? Saber-toothed tiger. Lions. Yeah. Lions. We weren't top of the food chain then. We weren't the apex species we are now. You know, we were about mid-range. We couldn't run very fast. In a bare-knuckle fight, there was hardly a creature that, that, that we could best. We were really vulnerable. If we wanted meat, then we would wait for a lion to take down a gazelle, have its fill. We'll wait for the wild dogs and the hyena to have their fill, and we would pick over the bones, and then the vultures would come. That's where we were in the food chain. <laughs> just imagine a bunch of people sitting around a fire, you know, way back then, deciding what it is they should be afraid of. They're saying, oh, you know, but the trees can come alive and wrap their branches around you and strangle you, you know? Yeah. And 
which brings me to this theory I was reading about called available. I think it's called availability, which is our, our perception of threat is, is increased if we can imagine it. Like yeah. if we, if we can imagine it, it's, it's even more. Um, so, so this is like the, this is the Jules phenomena, right? I suppose, I, I suppose. Yeah. Boom, yeah boom. But there, you're looking boom, at. Boom, 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 boom. And, no, I mean, know, who, no, I mean, whoever went swimming, having seen Jules without imagining that there's a fucking shark in the water below them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're, they're probably looking at these lion's teeth and saying, yeah, that could, that could definitely pierce my skin and do some damage. Right. But yeah. So but, you're looking at things that, oh, this, this could, that, that could happen. Kind of now, but back then, you know, they probably had their wild imaginings, but the fear of lions, that was hard baked. They didn't have to think, oh, should I be scared of this lion, of the snake, you know, of this charging buffalo? It was like, yeah. And fear kicks in before thought. You know, you have a physical reaction before you have a psychological reaction. It's just like having a Red Bull, a cup of coffee, and a shot of vodka all at once. It's these chemicals just dumped into your bodies that say, you know, flight or fright, let's go. Yeah. And most, most of the time, you know, it was flight because there weren't many things that we could fight against. You know, so it still is, that's for, hard me. It still is for me too. I'm a coward. I'm <laughs> a coward as well. You know? It's, it's just... hard baked into me. But I think, I think bringing that forward into the modern age, because that's hard baked into our physiological system and our bodies, our minds, our systems are exactly the same now that they were 200,000 years ago we haven't really changed you know we might have had a haircut we might have shaved we might have taken a shower we might shave a little we might we might smell a little better but we're physiologically we're exactly the same as we were back then and uh my theory is this is that you know we spent all that time out there on the savannah scanning for danger do 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 and our minds still scan for danger now do 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 you know we haven't ratcheted it down we haven't thought hey, that's it okay we're in california now we're in london now we can kind of take it easy you know our mechanisms our fear mechanisms our, our levels of anxiety are exactly the same as they always have been they haven't adapted to the modern world they haven't said it's fine we've got penicillin you know if you get hurt there's a doctor there you know the chances of someone you know coming and stabbing me with a spear you know they're pretty limited you know we're not living the game of thrones anymore in most parts of the world we're not winter is coming but that's interesting how much of it is it is if you look at how would you explain the you know people definitely being afraid of i mean for example there was jade helm this conspiracy theory down in texas where you know a simple army maneuver was you know the government you know secretly coming in to take control of everybody how do you sort of explain this rise of conspiracy theories and how they are either kind of assuaging people's fears or creating new ones well i think the currency that you're you're referring to there is trust and i think you know back in the old days you, know, you trusted the leader you know or you obeyed the leader but i think now your sources of information come from such a wide range of sources through the internet through the media on the tv channels there's there so much information out there that you know, you know, when I grew up, you know, here in the UK, it was 1982 before we got our fourth television channel, and all the news came in in, in two flavors: either BBC or the alternative channel was was ITV, and everyone you know listened to that, everyone believed that. Whereas now there are innumerable news channels; some are believed more than others. 
you know, but also it's eroded the trust in the BBC because not everyone holds on to that central narrative. So I think there's a, a splintering of information and a splintering of trust. And I think that is a really, really important in the future. It's the sort of issue that can down giants. It can down, say, Facebook. If there was a massive data breach on Facebook, you know, that would further erode the trust. You know, we've had Cambridge Analytica, what are you doing with my data? But if its systems were to be breached, then I think more people would move away from that. Oh, you worked at Facebook and they, they realized that. Uh, yes. Well, you can see it in the share price, you know, Cambridge Analytica uh, crisis. It knocked, I think, about 15% off the, off the share price at the time. Of course, it's since recovered. The, the, the march of Facebook, the ambition of Facebook is, is absolutely sort of limitless. Um, but the big test is, will it gain the trust of users? Or is, it, is there going to be a TikTok-type issue where people are going to say, well, actually, it's the government behind this. They're using all of our data for nefarious purposes. We can't trust them. And then we'll have a new sort of startup, you know, like, uh, you know, younger kids these days, they use Snapchat. They wouldn't dream of using Facebook. I think part of that is about trust. Another part is they don't want to use a system that their boomer parents use. They don't trust boomers. Do people value their information as much, the younger generation, as, the, as we do now? I mean, do, are they as concerned about what they're actually protecting and what needs to be secured? Well, I think they instinctively share an awful lot more than boomers do. Do you remember when their telephone recording machines first came out? And it's like, oh, my goodness, I have to leave a voice ma- message here. Oh, I'm so nervous. Uh, uh, yeah. Hi, hi uh, this is uh, uh, it's Mike, and I'd like to uh, uh, to talk with uh, Jane. And uh, Can you call me back? And you'd be nervous, inarticulate, or often it's an answering machine. I'm not speaking to that. So fast forward to the modern generation where people are on media the whole time. In fact, if we rewind a little bit and take uh, something like uh, closed circuit TV, CCTV, that started to come in, you know, in the sort of 70s, 80s. By the 90s, it was pretty ubiquitous. And we got used to going into stores, you know, and being under surveillance like that. You know, around about 2000, certainly since 2001, since we've all felt terrified since 9-11, there's been a lot more CCTV out in public streets, uh, places of transportation, and then move forward to the sort of 2010s with you know, mobile phones being ubiquitous and people getting used you know, not only to leaving voicemails, but to making calls like this. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, Mark, you wouldn't have seen me on screen. I wouldn't be talking on this stuff. I'd have been too sort of self-conscious. You know, my, I, would, I, would, uh, I would lack trust in the system. I would lack confidence in using them. I'd be incredibly sort of self-conscious. And then if you move forward from there, Mark, and, uh, do you remember Google Glasses? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they came out in 2013. You know, so they were essentially a smartphone that you know, had the format of glasses, a smartphone that you wore on your nose. And you'd have a heads-up display, you know, which was great. You could talk to them like you talked to Siri or Alexa. And in many ways, you know, they were absolutely brilliant. But people didn't like uh, talking to to those that were wearing Google glasses, they didn't like being on camera all the time. They didn't like the invasion on privacy. But you know, fast forward seven, eight years, ten years, or whatever it is, we're used to being on you know FaceTime, on WhatsApp, you know, on Zoom calls. You know, Google glasses—they're going to make a comeback. 
just think of what, the, what you could do with Zoom with the information. I mean, you could have a meeting with somebody and talk with them, right? And then you could have a program that could completely just analyze their behavior, their expressions, what they said, how, they, and then it could give you the subtext of the entire. <laughs> yeah. It could give you like a running subtext alongside of, I mean, maybe just you know the actual dialogue what you said. Based on this recording, you can translate it into a text, and then you can have another program that says, right, you know, summarize what are the key points on this. And artificial intelligence will do that for you now. You know, lawyers use artificial intelligence to write contracts, and it's more accurate than a regular lawyer would be. So we become sort of avatars of ourselves. I think we're hitting on some pretty big themes that um, somebody else could articulate a lot better than I can, but I've just noticed that. In our presidential campaign right now, you have you have President Trump and his method of defending his reputation. Let's say you know he he has he has he spends a lot of energy with defending his image, and one of the ways that he does that, and he always has done this, is almost this kind of schoolyard way of accusing somebody else of what he's being accused of, making up a, a nickname just disparaging people and straight up lying. And what that does is it creates this dynamic where the the person who's kind of the object of, of this offensive is immediately on the defensive. So there's this, I'm just wondering from a security perspective, perspective what you know, about that dynamic between offense and defense, right? Because I even noticed Joe Biden now, his messaging is a little more, a little more aggressive, He's accusing Trump of things, putting him in the position where he has yeah. to defend himself. Yeah. And that seems relatively new. I mean, the campaigns have always been kind of antagonistic like yeah. this, but what do you, what have you seen in that? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, watching from, you know, the safe distance of the UK, you know, I, th- I think, you know, we would, we would all sort of recognize that the political discourse in the United States over the past four years hasn't been the most elegant it's ever been. <laughs> So that is a sort of baseline. But also this kind of really feeds into security because generally speaking, if you are right wing, you'll be more pro-security. You'll want more security. And if you're left wing, if you're broadly Democrat, you'll value liberty. So, you know, you immediately have two political blocks here, you know, the law and order president or the, the libertarian president. So this feeds into the security agenda. And I would imagine that most people... Can I can I mention gun ownership? You know, uh, oh, absolutely. People yeah. who, who own guns in the United States, you know, I would imagine the majority. I don't know what proportion, but the majority uh, would be Republicans. So I think you know what we're seeing is people playing to their bases. At the same time, you know, Joe Biden doesn't want to be want to, want to be seen to be uh, weak and law and order. Um, you know, he wants to be seen as much more inclusive. You know, whereas uh, President Trump has not always instinctively uh, attempted to appeal to the broad section of American society. You know, I've heard people even suggest that he's been divisive at times. But in terms of like his methods, how much of how much of uh, you know the security profession is actually offensive? I remember, I, remember, I just remember, like I was never, you know, yeah, we were both, you know, conflict zones or whatever. But I think. I just remember learning this one lesson where I was trying to defend this one building in an exercise with the miles equipment, you know, and a company's invading and I got a platoon and I'm sent there. And <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes I made was having a kind of static defense where I wasn't kind of going out and patrolling and trying to find yeah. where, you know, where the enemy was coming from. So I'm just wondering how much of, how much of, you know, security is offensive 
I mean, I was just using the example yeah. of, you know, Trump and his discourse, but... Well, I, I, I think you sort of hit on a really interesting issue there, Mark, and that is, you know, how do you define security? I think what you're talking about there as a, as a young uh, uh, platoon leader, uh, keeping the free world free, that's right. what I would call defense. And of course, that's part of security as well. And then you can have, you know, securities, which are a financial instrument. You can have emotional security. You can have food security. You can have security in your relationship. You can have security on the internet. Security is a really sort of baggy term. It's hard to define. And what I'm looking at at the moment in the, in the context of some, uh, some stuff that I'm writing is the core character for me in security is, is not the soldier. It's not the police officer that keeps law and order. It's essentially the night watchman. So if, if you imagine in a medieval city, uh, you know, you had the city walls and, you know, hunched there somewhere in the center over a sort of brazier over these hot coals, you know, face glowing orange like Donald Trump's, you know, you know that night watchman, you know, that's the sort of, you know, central figure. And that figure has morphed into the the SOC operator, security operations center. And he's not looking over the brazier. He's looking at screens, at CCTV cameras. He's monitoring things or she's monitoring things uh, increasingly. Security tends to be a very sort of male-dominated uh, world. Although, I mean, we can talk about diversity and security if, if you like, and I'm just conscious in these febrile times that a comment like that, you know, I'll probably get, you know, flashed and hazed and sort of burnt and, you know, scolded. I'll, I'll be burnt at the, uh, at the, at the cyber stake uh, for mentioning uh, that uh, he rather than she. <laughs> burnt at the cyber stake. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're like being roasted, just roasted on social media until you, until you yeah. just couldn't do it anymore. Just, yeah, I absolutely. mean, could you be humiliated to the point of of death? I mean, it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> could I be so humiliated that I'd take my own life? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, isn't that what well, isn't that what doxing well, is? Well, this, that's what they have a term for that, right? It's it's doxing, well, just a completely. Yeah, yeah. When you uh, when you put uh, embarrassing data about someone online. Uh, for everyone to criticize. Well, you know, I've, I've suffered many humiliations in, in life, Mark. God None. knows I've seen some of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a family show, so be careful. Uh, none of them have been quite so uh, severe that uh, I felt the need to, uh, to take my own life, but I have burrowed myself away and buried in shame for prolonged periods. Wouldn't it be useful if you knew when you would die? Because then you could work out, well, you know, maybe if I'm going to die next year, maybe I'll stop working now and kick back and enjoy. And if I'm not going to die for another 10 years, then how much money have I got left and how much can I spend, you know, on an annual basis? You know, you can plan your final years. You can make sure that they're fulfilling. And so you have that level of predictability. So you, you, can, you can plan your own death, your own lifestyle, your own security plan, and then you kind of monetize it. So... Uh, there's the concept of uh, a statistical value of a life. And let's say it's about a million dollars. So if you were to die, then someone had to compensate you a million dollars. No, but let's say you had another five years to live. And then we'd think, well, how much is that life worth? Then you could say, well, a million dollars over 55 years, that works out for every, every 30 second chunk. That's worth like $2.30. So then you can kind of work out well, hang on, I don't want to spend more on extending my life than my life is actually worth. So you can start monetizing your life expectancy, your security plan, your retirement plan, your pension, your lifestyle. You can digitize it all. You can plan it. 
Now, there are apps out there. There have been, I think there's something called the, uh, the deathclock.com. Yeah. And you put in your parameters, your lifestyle, which includes your, your disposition. Yeah. Are you a cheerful chap? Because if you are, it's good because you'll live longer than if you're a miserable chap. The smoking, the drinking, the exercise, you know, the location in which you live. Take a look at deathclock.com. There's a whole series of applications that will give you, I mean, obviously it's a statistical concept, but it will give you, you know, the day that you will die. But the technology and the parameters that underpin this are just getting more and more sophisticated. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm going to go to Deathclock. <laughs> that's a great place to, that's a great place to end this interview i'm that's going to be on the death clock i've got to yeah. go because i got to go check the death clock and uh, <laughs> i'll get back from there yeah. so yeah uh mike anything else you want to add well I, I just think in terms of progress in terms of progress um just to kind of sum it up so we've gone from fear on the african plains to fear of god you know within religion to understanding more about risk, to accountability, and then to digitization. That's the sort of journey that we're making through personal security risk. And this concept of us being able to choose the day that we die, in some ways it's deeply scary, but in others it should be quite reassuring. And it means that we can plan our lives. It will take the spontaneity out of it. but also the uncertainty. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? I think it's an inevitable thing. Good talking to you, Mike. Cheers, Mike. Now, hold on. If you've listened this long, there's an extra for you. Um, in this episode, I also speak with Mike's 17-year-old son, Ben, who lives in Massachusetts. Uh, this is from a conversation we had in early June of 2020. Ben talks about a Black Lives Matter rally that he had just attended on May 31st that got a little violent. Uh, He shares the frustrations of remote learning and how COVID-19 has not only affected his social life, but his views toward the future. Begin transmission. I just want to roll back a little bit. You're 17. How how are you getting your news? I think it starts on really Snapchat and Instagram for me. That's the Mm -hmm. main um, source of media. And then from there, I guess I'll take different topics and look them up, uh, find out the news on CNN, Fox, whatever whichever sources are providing it. And then my mom is watching the news. She's on Facebook, a bunch of Facebook and Twitter threads. So I guess as a family, we've been, we've been very caught up, invested in this. So who did you go to? You went to downtown Boston. Was this yesterday or the day before? Oh, uh, this was on Sunday. So I went with my sister and my mom. We, yeah, we went from the beginning to the end. It was from uh, Dorchester to the state house in Boston. So your dad purports to be a disaster specialist. Did he have any advice for you before you went? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't inform him that I was going. He had no idea until after. He had no. He had no tips for crisis management. Oh, I'm sure he would have. What was the general mood of people there? Was it was it outrage? Was it sort of a, a kind of calm solidarity? And could you tell the difference between? Because I don't really know how much vandalism was going on Sunday, but uh, maybe you could describe the different types of people that were there. I guess maybe different roles instead of different types. Right. Yeah. It was very, very loud. A lot of people like chanting, just chant after chant. There was no, well, actually there was one silent moment. Um, we were in the front of the parade and they all, they had a silent moment, but it was, it was very brief, like 10 seconds. But I mean, you could still hear like the cheers and chants of the, the rest of the marchers from behind. So I guess it was very like segmented. 
the amount like in, in each little group there would be someone with a megaphone someone shouting out like chants and then just people would get in on it from all different sides and then there were people who were like hanging posters out of their buildings not wanting to come out because of corona but uh every time that like the parade passed someone who was out their window holding a sign or just even out their window clapping everyone would cheer and like everyone would start clapping yeah sort of celebrating that and so yeah i guess those are the two main groups was the the protesters and then the people watching but i mean no it was completely peaceful like like nothing i mean except we 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 did walk past a group of cops and there was a lot of you know like fuck 12 like cops are pigs everyone like flipping off the the officers and that was i guess like the heat of what i really saw going on until we got into the the boston public garden that was at the very end right in front of the state house and uh it's a lot more of an open space it's not really trees so there were different groups in different areas mainly like all funneling towards the state house but then in the road between the the commons and the state house is where the the police cars drove through where like the the back and forth between the the two parties started was there like a line of you know riot police standing along that road uh not a, no police officers were in the march no one was there except for like like i said yeah the bicycle officers who were just sort of off to the side in one little parking lot along the route but no police in riot gear until like the pepper spraying started and then as we were driving out i mean there was like a tweet that went out all available units go to the state house and so that's where we saw a bunch of uh, SUVs, police SUVs driving. And then especially on our way out, we left right as it was starting. And so on our way out, there was just a whole flow of cars into the city. So was it common to be sort of monitoring like police Twitter handles or did you have a scanner going or something? I'm just wondering how people are communicating. No, it was just, so we were, yeah, we were on our way out and like things were heating up. So on the way out, uh, we were all checking Twitter feeds and it was just a tweet from the Boston police that was saying all available units are headed to this area. And then there were a bunch of people who were like, you know, get out of Boston, leave now. Things are escalating. Things are going crazy. But I mean, all of the peaceful protesters, like I, I don't think they were a part of the rioting that ensued, I guess. It was, it was more people from out of town who were just using the protests as more of a cover just to commit crimes, commit vandalism. It wasn't the protesters that I was with, at least. Well, racially, how would you say, how would you describe the crowd? I'd say it was, it was pretty evenly mixed. Yeah, like very, I mean, predominantly black, I'd say. But yeah, definitely a mix. That was interesting to see. I would, I would have su- suspected it to be like completely majority black. But then to see the diversity that was there. Yeah, it was really, really exciting to see. What about the ages generally of people? Oh, no kids. That's something that I didn't notice. No young, young kids. And if they, if there were, they didn't, they didn't go to the finish. They didn't complete. So, I mean, when we were standing in the park, I couldn't see anyone under the age of maybe 13. I mean, which is still young, but no one, no one was bringing their kids and infants to, uh, to these rallies, just, I guess, because of the concern of, of the police and the riot. No, when I was, when I was walking, I was posting like pictures and videos, not of people's faces, because I mean, that was, that was like a big, a big thing we were told, like, don't, don't show anyone's faces. Who told you that? Who told you that? It's just sort of been circling the media. So around like the, the protests, so when like the, the Black Lives Matter movement organized the protests, a bunch of different messages went out from all different sources being like, make sure to cover your face, bring a water bottle of uh, water and baking soda mix to, uh, to help with the pepper spray. 
And then um, don't wear any clothing that's identifiable. Cover your face at all times. Don't bring any drugs or weapons on you while you're going to the, while you're marching. Everyone was dressed in just all black. Like just everyone was in black. I mean, yeah, everyone had masks, so it wasn't as big of a deal like the covering people's faces and people were taking photos and documenting it. But that was just something that I, I remembered to sort of watch out for a little bit. And that was in the back of my mind. Like, don't, don't expose these people just in case. Cause I mean, police were targeting, I mean, I guess in Minneapolis and uh, Atlanta, police were monitoring cell phone activity and like collective cell phone activity to see where the, the riots were happening, where the, where different groups were. Yeah. The stress they gave you, sort of instructions of what to bring. Cause I noticed when I was just watching on TV in the comfort of my house, um, people are there. A lot of times there's a lot of people that have video cameras that are going on at the same time. And they all seem to be pointed toward the police. So that might be, a, that might be a factor. People aren't kind of showing the rest of the crowd trying to keep other people's faces off camera, but it seems like there's a lot of attention paid to the police from the demonstrators. I mean, that, and I mean, that makes sense to me, I guess, because like the protesters are, for the most part, peaceful and they're just standing there. But it's like the one person at the front of the crowd that I've noticed, like the one person who steps forward, challenges the police officer, like really like a face to face direct confrontation. Like then the police officer will react and beat them and uh, like spray them. But it's not it's not the rest of the group, because I mean, in all those videos, there's like hundreds of people behind the camera that, mm-hmm. that you're just, and I mean, yeah. Cause I mean, the police are really what people are focusing on, but I, I, I saw a bunch of people who were doing like Facebook live, Instagram live, just showing the crowds, not showing the police, but being like, this is really beautiful to see having all these people out here supporting this one cause. And yeah, just a bunch of people sort of vlogging in the, as they were marching. When you were there, you know how like sometimes if you're standing like on a bridge, I don't know, <laughs> you're standing at a bridge or like a really high place and you feel that weird urge to jump. Did you ever feel like an urge to like antagonize the police or shake a fence or, or to make some <laughs> kind of move to agitate somebody? I'm not asking that like you no, personally no, to get you in trouble, but it absolutely. almost seems like that that's would be natural, right? Yeah. And I mean, I did when I, when we were walking past the cops, uh, a bunch of people ahead of me were flipping them off. And I just like, I, I just, I was going to, like, I just felt the urge completely to just like, be like, you suck, like racist pigs, like, what are you doing? But then I realized I was like, these, these cops aren't doing anything. Like they're just sitting there. They're watching. They were throwing up like peace signs. And so, I mean, I had, I, like, it went against my sort of morals to like, just antagonize them in that moment and just be like, you're awful. Because, I mean, I didn't know them. And, I mean, if they gave me a reason to, then, yeah, I probably would have. And I probably would have been, like, shouting back. If they had approached the crowd and were hurting people, then I absolutely understand the the yearning to want to fight back. It's like they're already, they're already getting all of that in the media, like a much larger scale. Like, you, you doing one little thing, like, sure, it feels good to yourself. But, I mean, I guess that's sort of the problem here is, is people, yeah, not really looking for the greater good, but just looking to get revenge personally. It just seems like younger people, you have, you're a little more amenable to change or having different points of view or having your mind changed. How, how do you respond to that? Oh, that's, that's difficult. I'd say, I guess the first, the first instinct that I would have would to be to persuade, 
like resort to violence is the last last step but i know a lot of people who feel differently and who who i mean yeah who believe that like these i mean i i i believe that i guess at this age people's views are are mainly influenced by their parents and like their their friends and their environment but i do believe that they can change but a lot of people just think like oh you think that you're a horrible person and like yeah definitely definitely people would get beat up for having just really like wrong views and not like statistically wrong just like morally wrong just like views that no sane person should agree with and i mean yeah i've seen people at school like fighting screaming about that stuff but i mean no first thing i'd go to is is try and persuade them because i mean like they they have a chance to change like beating them up like sure that may that may ingrain it in their mind but it's better to yeah it's just to to teach them and to walk them through like why this is wrong provide like the examples be like listen this is like i mean it's the same it's the same example with like protesting like does protesting get the message across that like this is wrong or like what the police are doing is wrong like yes sort of but is it helping no so i mean like it gets the point across but it doesn't actually accomplish much and so i guess yeah the best ways to educate or to take like proper calm action like don't fight fire with fire and uh Mm -hmm. Yeah, and see where that goes. Let's shift over to. Oh, by the way, there's a pandemic going on still. I mean, oh, right. <laughs> forget about that, right? How you're in school? You're getting ready to. You're applying to colleges. You're taking. Te- are you junior, or senior? I'm a junior. You're junior. Okay, so you got a little. You got a little time. What's your plan? How did it change? A lot of things changed. I guess just right, right going into spring break. I sort of knew. I had a hunch that we weren't going back to school, so I. I packed up a lot of my stuff and just had mm-hmm. it ready in case I had to go back and pick it up easily. So just stash, you stash it somewhere. Did you bury it <laughs> on the grounds. <laughs> no, no, no. Just, You're just, just packed. You're just packed. Yeah. yeah just packed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. While I was on March break, uh, they said we wouldn't be going back for two weeks and then two weeks became four weeks. And then it just went on and on and on until they're just like, sorry, you're not returning. But it was it was even after we started online classes that they were like, you're not going to be returning to campus this year. Yeah. So we, we were in online classes. At first, I guess they weren't as bad. People didn't really know what was going on. So it was just like a whole state of confusion for a while. Like teachers not knowing how to assign homework, check homework. Students like not really caring, not showing up to classes, being like, I, I don't want to do this. Like this is dumb. And then gradually... Like in the middle, it was fine. Everything all was organized and just easy to follow. And then towards the end, I mean, so for our school, I know every school did it differently, but for us, we started at nine thirty uh, and went till three. Had to sit in front of the screen for four seventy-minute-long classes. So we were just sitting there looking at a screen for uh, yeah, from nine thirty until three. And after a while, that just like was giving me like such bad headaches and I was getting outside after every day, just trying to be outside, be in nature, not be looking at a screen, but it just, yeah, it did take a, it took quite a, quite a toll, made me super tired. Um, I did get a pair of those, uh, screen glasses, I guess that, uh, block out the blue light. Those helped a little bit, but everyone, everyone was feeling the same way. Like in classes, certain classes, teachers would be like, Hey, how are you guys doing this week? Like, how are you mentally? How are you physically? And yeah, a couple of kids were just raising their like, I, I don't know how much longer like we can do this. Like, this is just so much work and just so 
like it just feels it feels more taxing than it should and like at the same time you aren't really learning anything because like it's just so difficult to learn just off of a screen it's almost like the screen is really just it's not necessarily anything entertaining to look at it's just something to maintain accountability that you're actually there, <laughs> that yeah you're, no that you're actually that's there entirely, right entirely it yep um yeah because i mean we if we like turned off our camera the teachers would be like hey like what are you doing and then i noticed like certain teachers if you were on mute and like had your video off teachers would target those students be like hey so uh do you have the answer and then half the time the kid wouldn't be there they'd just be be elsewhere so the teacher would be like oh and then, and then like mark them a lower grade but it was just so it definitely was for accountability because i knew a bunch of other schools that would just like assign a work packet for the week meet on like a Friday class, go over the stuff and that would be it. So like you do it in your own time, but with my school is very much nope, sit in front of the screen. So the teacher knows you're there and just pretend like it's a, it's a classroom, but like there's just no classroom feel to it. Like you're not in a field, like in a space, you can't raise your hand, ask a question. You're just watching the teacher write on like a mechanical screen with like a pencil that isn't even there. Just sort of, creating lines and and then you like have your you have your math equation but you didn't have any chance to ask what was going on during it and so everything just moved at a lot slower of a pace is i guess yeah the main takeaway just a lot slower and a lot harder it seems like somebody could just do something like this i don't mean to give you any ideas you just take like <laughs> you just like film yeah <laughs> just yeah. like film yourself here and then just put that right there yeah it's not, a, it's not actually me it's just me filming myself <laughs> yeah that would work seamlessly yeah. well you could the, gl- the glare would give it away you'd have to figure that out like oh yeah you know just a, a steady video of someone yeah. a steady video of yourself <laughs> nodding the head going like this you know looking around yep but what about like yeah. socially and your friends i mean does that i mean that's gotta that's gotta be a big thing how does that how does that affect you um, are you yeah, maintaining yeah. contact with friends? I mean, you say it's hard, it's hard to have a class for 70 minutes, but can you talk to friends or other people? Do you, you, you guys use FaceTime or Zoom to talk to each other or phone or what? I mean, yeah. So as most of my friends are kids who go to boarding school, they're all like not in the, not in the same area. But um, yeah, at first I wasn't video chatting anyone. I would, I would FaceTime the occasional friend just for a couple minutes, check in how they're doing, how the family's doing what they've been doing to stay busy. Um, but otherwise it was just me and my, my buddy Eli and uh, he and I have been like before quarantine, like just hanging out every day, going mountain biking, hiking, um, just exploring the woods. So we've been together the entirety of quarantine. And I know that's like more of a luxury than, than most people can say, like just being stuck inside their house, parents not letting them go out. Um, but since I was with him, both, I guess, both of our parents just sort of agreed. They're like, "Yep, they can, they can stay together as long as like it's just them. Um, mm-hmm. They'll be all right." Yeah, we do a lot of hiking. We go for like miles uh, at a day, and that was just that was super relaxing. Just like getting out in nature, not being like consumed by oh, like where am I going next? Like who am I meeting up with tonight? Um, and I mean, with my family, I sort of told them I was like, "Listen." We're going to be locked up for a while. I know it's not going to be like two weeks or three weeks, like they're saying. So, I mean, in the beginning, like I'm going to 
I'm going to spend as much time away from you guys as I can. Cause I mean, the first night they were like, let's play a family board game. Let's, let's all hang out. And I was like, guys, like I'd love to, but <laughs> I'm not trying to get, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to get tired of you. The first like week of quarantine, we added another friend to the mix, my buddy, Ryan. And he, he lives like an hour away, but we were the only kids who he was really hanging out with. So he would come down and drive down to us most days. It's at first it was weird. Um, you'd see some teenagers having little parties in the woods, like away from their parents until like proper lockdown started. And they then like no one was out. And we were the only people out, only people on the roads. And I remember one night early on, the three of us, or well, actually just me and Ryan, we um, just drove around all night and uh, just noticed there were just zero cars on the highway. Just drove from like nine till four in the morning. And just nowhere, like I mean, everyone everywhere was empty. Like no, no parking lots, none, none of the highways, none of the highways near the airport, um, and especially skate parks. We went to a bunch of skate parks, and no one, like completely empty. Are you a skateboarder? I am. Yeah. Well, I guess a, a quarantine skateboarder. Yeah, just picked right. it up at the beginning of this. Um, so that was that's been getting me through a lot is skateboarding with my friends. Uh, People have started to come back to the parks more. Um, first, they were wearing masks, and then gradually they just stopped because it was just too exhausting and would restrict airflow. You know, it's funny. You would think that, oh, suddenly if you're not really allowed to have that kind of you know, social engagement with people, that you would just convert to digital and then you would just have uh, a dozen friends you know a hundred friends because you can text them all at the same time instead of just being but it yeah. seems interesting that there's a more little more of a focus on you know smaller groups of kids i guess it's more of like a a rebellious nature that's taken over a lot of kids sort of that feeling of like oh like i'm gonna go out because i'm not supposed to um sort of just like underage drinking smoking it's all really the same and like the only people out are cops and like people patrolling and so like when you drive by them you already have this like sense of like ooh, like i'm doing something wrong even if you're not even if you're just driving to your friend's house um oh, right. but just like the fact of being out of your house when everyone's like oh in quarantine like locked down in their house haven't left their house have gone for like a single grocery run i don't know i found it fascinating just to drive around and see what's been going on and like obviously staying away from people pulling into like parking lots and just sort of watching like people's behavior. And I mean, at first, any observations, I mean the first two weeks. So we have like these walking trails across the street from our house. And, uh, the first two weeks, they were more packed than I've ever seen them in my life. Like so many more people. And I, I don't know what it was. I would have expected people to just become hermits, but no, right away. Everyone was like, Oh, let's go walking. And like, let's leave the house. Let's go out into nature. Cause like all, all jobs were canceled. Um, like businesses were shut down. People were just like, had all this free time and everyone was going outside. Everyone was going on walks. Uh, no one was wearing a mask at first because I guess out here in the suburbs, people were like, we don't have to wear masks. Like that's, that's dumb. And then we got our first case in this town. There were like three cases in the town next door. And then after that, the police locked off all the, the walking paths, all the trails, mm -hmm. all the, the wildlife reservations were just like, no, you, you can't go. So, I mean, people just didn't have anywhere to go. You know, one of the changes from 
this pandemic is that people are, they want to get outside. It's like, it was like if somebody said you can't have donuts anymore. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts would just be overrun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no. Well, yeah. um, anyway, cool. I appreciate you being, uh, you being my, um, you know, secret undercover agent, American youth Absolutely. at age 17 yep. in Western Massachusetts. I appreciate you, you chatting with me and giving me your perspective and your experiences on this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to throw in? Anything else you want to add that uh, people should know about what it's like growing up? I know what I want to ask you. What do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe I'll interview you next year and just check in again. Ooh. Change your mind. Um, well, you sound pretty. You sound pretty grown up, as as they would say when I was a kid. Is you have a pretty good head in your shoulders. <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> what, what, do, what do you want to do in this wild in this wild world? I mean, yeah, that's so that that's actually that's a big thing that uh, I guess the older generation is is somewhat overlooking. In my experience, is uh, kids don't really see a future anymore. Like we don't really we don't really see like. Like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be this. I mean, at least in my experience, it's like, oh, I guess we'll just see what happens. Like, what's thrown our way next is, like, what we'll adapt to. And, I mean, I know I want to go into, like, environmental work because, I mean, that's all really we have left, I guess, of that and, and doctors and, like, politi- like politicians, good politicians. Mm-hmm. But it's like, at this age, you're kind of like, okay, like, I've already had this much go on in my life. like what next you don't know if the world's going to end in like 30 years 15 years 10 years 100 years so i mean i'm gonna chase a person like so i want to be i want to be a scuba instructor is sort of my main thing mm-hmm. uh that, and then environmental bio, like biologists um marine biologists and i mean at least for me that's just because i want to like see the world i want to travel the world for a good while because as in that job, you can you can work at different dive shops, different locations all around the world, like very easily, very quickly. Um, it's just a, a quick transfer. So that's always been appealing to me. And uh, in college, I want to major in uh, philosophy, minor in law. And I'm not really sure where that will take me. But I guess as I want to meet people, I want to explore the world, understand different perspectives, see why people act the way they do, and not just listen to what I'm told by the media and just sit in a desk job all day. And Yeah. It's an interesting job. I've always wanted to be like a mountain guide. That'd be my thing. But you know, yeah. I think those kind of jobs are, are interesting and they can also be really influential with people and memorable because you're, you're not just taking somebody on a nature walk. You're taking them through a potentially, you know, life-threatening uh, experience. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a yeah. fairly, Intense. I mean, I remember I first, the first time I went scuba, I used to just, you know, snorkel and stuff when I was a kid. But the first time I went like proper scuba diving was, yeah, I went to see your your dad when he was in Tanzania. And we hung out in Pemba and I went and got my um, dive certificate at this little resort down there. And it was this French guy, uh, chain smoked Galois. I remember sitting with him and I said, yeah, he's ever done this before. I said, no, I want to learn everything. And he was smoking a cigarette and he said, well, uh, I don't have time to teach you everything because I have a group coming, but uh, I tell you what, um, I need just do one thing. I'm like, what he goes, I want you to watch me and do everything <laughs> that I do. 
for the rest of the day. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, don't we get to do any patty numbers and all this stuff? He's like, no, no, we save all that bullshit for later. You don't take your eyes off me. You do what I do. Can you do this? I was like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just yeah. watched everything he did with the tanks and where he yeah. was. He taught me how to, he taught me how to, I was like, going to put the belts on. He's like, you don't need to put that on. No, not with, not with me. I had to not use the belts. So he was like teaching me how to exhale so much, you know, that you're inhaling just a little bit to sink, right? Because yeah. we do it the Jacques Cousteau way. <laughs> and then, oh my God, this guy's going to kill me, you know, but. Yeah, but I mean, see, you remember that. And that I remember like, that process. Your, your, yeah. scuba, your scuba guide was, was the one who took you on that, yeah, that journey. And yeah, yeah, I mean, having that ability to implant a memory in someone's life, I guess that that intense, yeah, that's I'd love that. <laughs> Good, go get it, man. You can still do Thank it. You. Thanks for being on the live drop. You're welcome. Yeah.